Hey, it's Maximana here, and in this episode of the Clean Energy Revolution, we're talking about the infrastructure that helps bring more clean, renewable energy to our homes and businesses, something that's essential in our journey to achieving net zero. We all want the energy we use in our everyday lives to be coming from cleaner sources, but wouldn't it be great if the work that's being done to make this happen was also bringing positive changes to people, places, and our natural environment? In this episode, I'll be finding out about just a few of the benefits that renewable energy infrastructure is bringing to our environment and our communities. Coming up, we'll talk to one of National Grid's environmental scientists to find out about a project that's helping local butterfly populations to thrive along the rights of way for their networks. We'll also hear from the world's largest vertical farm in Norfolk and find out why being connected to renewable energy is essential for them supplying UK supermarkets with six and a half tons of fresh produce every single day. And we'll head back to the United States in Minnesota to take a look at the different way local communities are benefiting from the renewable energy infrastructure that's being constructed near them. Let's get into it. This is the Clean Energy Revolution from National Grid. These days, we're very aware of how important it is to maintain and promote biodiversity. For landowners, it's important that the land they own is managed in ways that create the most value for us and for the wider environment. We know that maintaining and expanding the energy networks is essential to transmit more renewable energy, but it's actually presented some surprising ways to help promote biodiversity too. As part of its responsible business charter, National Grid has committed to improving the environmental value of 10% of the land it owns by 2030. To accomplish this, they're working with environmental scientists on a project to help promote pollination and biodiversity. National Grid has joined the Monarch CCAA, a voluntary conservation agreement that intends to address the needs of monarch butterflies before they become listed as an endangered or threatened species. The Monarch CCAA also supports National Grid's responsible business ambition. Today, I'm talking with Tracy Miller, the lead environmental scientist at National Grid. Hi, Tracy. How are you? And where are you joining us from today? I'm doing well, thank you. I actually am in uh, upstate New York in the uh, Albany area. Okay. New York. I'm from Connecticut, so I know the area very well. So you're a lead environmental scientist. Can you tell me what that involves? And did you always want to be an environmentalist or even a scientist? <laughs> That's a great question. Um, my education background is in geology, environmental science, and urban and regional planning. And I didn't intend to get into licensing and permitting, but it happened and I enjoy it very much. Um, so early on in my career, started with consulting and then ended up at National Grid. So there's a program that you lead. It's called the Monarch CCAA. Can you tell us a little bit more about this program? National Grid is very interested in improving the environment and obviously maintaining our good standing with regulations and being in that environment. The CCAA, we joined several years ago, and it's called the Candidate Conservation Agreement with Assurances for an agreement that we entered into with the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service 
and the University of Illinois, Chicago. So basically, it's a voluntary conservation agreement between multiple parties and Fish and Wildlife Service, which is a federal agency. And the intention of the program is to address the needs of at-risk species. So in this case, it has to do with the monarch butterfly, and it's really to help preserve their habitat and help the survival of that species. So in this case, there's non-federal landowners, which are also called partners, and those are the folks, um, in this case, utility companies and transportation entities that can voluntarily commit to conservation measures to help stabilize that particular species. And once a partner, again, those folks like the utility, so National Grid, once they've entered into the agreement and committed to those conservation measures, what comes in return from the Fish and Wildlife Service is a permit and what are called assurances that if the species becomes listed, there aren't any additional conservation measures or restrictions placed on those partners. So it really provides a level of certainty for companies like National Grid to be able to maintain and operate our facilities like we always have, knowing that we're implementing those conservation measures and then can conduct that maintenance uninterrupted. Why monarchs and why are they important to the ecosystem? Monarchs are pollinators, and there's a lot of talk about pollinators these days. And they are very important to the environment because as they move from their food source collecting nectar, they pick up pollen and move to the next flower, and they are pollinating as they go. And the pollination of different flowers and species is very important for our food sources. There are certain species that require pollination from insects. Squashes and blueberries are examples of those. And so, you know, any pollinator, which includes the monarchs, bees, etc., is really important to our food sources and other flowering species. Switching gears just a little bit, the CCAA, what's the application process like? And can you tell us a little bit more about that? National Grid reviewed the agreement that was developed and has a whole bunch of different technical sections in it. It talks about the types of lands that can be enrolled, the covered activities, so like National Grid's operation and maintenance practices, what would be included in the agreement the types of conservation measures that you can choose to include. So once we reviewed all that and recognized that we could be an effective partner and could be in compliance with the CCAA requirements, we decided to go ahead and in return enhance the habitat for the monarchs. And and how does National Grid comply with the conditions of the agreement? A lot of those conservation measures that benefit the monarch are practices that National Grid already implements through our vegetation management um, of our rights of ways. So our electric and gas rights of ways need to be maintained and kept clear of vegetation, so trees and tall growing species. And through the practices that we implement, um, which include specific brush removal, conservation mowing, which is really just restricts the mowing to certain times of year, 
we are able to maintain a pollinator and nectar type low growing species habitat on lots of our rights of ways. So by implementing that vegetation management program, we're actually already supporting a lot of the conservation measures that are part of the CCAA. So we're really, um, I would say it's a win-win situation. It's something that we're already doing and is supporting those pollinators. So we're obviously supporting the butterflies and their habitat. And I will say that the CCAA program is very flexible and it allows partners like National Grid to implement things that work for the company. You know, the goal isn't to make it difficult. The goal is to make it easier so that we can actually make a difference. So in that sense, the program has been really great for us as a company. Excellent. And after two years of monitoring, what does the data show us? The data so far has been excellent. It's very favorable, actually, for National Grid. It is showing that our rights of ways do support nectar species and uh, milkweed, which is essential for the monarch butterflies, and in sufficient amounts that it's considered valuable habitat for the monarchs. And we have actually seen monarchs during the monitoring, which is also fun. So, you know, as a company, we're excited and proud to be an early partner in the program. And it's great to see that the work that we do every day is helping support a species. So that's pretty, pretty cool. And, and what's the biggest lesson you think you've learned? It's really um, encouraging as a utility company that we're required to do are actually providing benefit to the environment. Our food sources are at risk if we lose pollinators. And so um, any way that we can help with these long linear connected corridors is really encouraging. This is really fascinating. And it's something I'm trying to do at home right now to help support pollinators to get their nutrients to get their food, to get their source of energy, to move on to the next plant to pollinate. What can we all do at home right now, whether you have a back garden, a garden, or a small window? So what can we do at home to support pollinators? I've actually learned recently, uh, as I investigate more of this, there are a ton of resources online. There's all kinds of websites for pollinator resources and partnerships. There's the Monarch Joint Venture, the Pollinator Partnership, the Xerces Society, local cooperative extensions or soil and water um, districts. Those types of organizations all have lots of information available. And it's really easy to plant flowers. You can do container gardening. That's actually been shown, even if you don't have a large space, to help as sort of a landing spot for butterflies and pollinators. And then there's all kinds of community programs that you can get involved with. They're called citizen science programs. And then other ways, you know, is to get kids involved and suggest programs for schools um, or like scout troops or other youth groups and things like that. I think starting kids at a young age to connect them with nature and our environment Getting him in the garden, getting him in the dirt was something my parents instilled in me at a young age. And it's definitely been part of my life ever since. So really great tips. Tracy Miller is the lead environmental scientist at National Grid. Thanks for joining us.
In the last episode, we talked about the emissions related to food and the huge impact they have on the planet, from the fuel we use to cook it to the energy used to grow and transport it. So could vertical farming help solve that problem? And why is the infrastructure that brings us renewable energy so important for them to grow produce that's green in every sense of the word? Tristan Fisher is the chairman of Fisher Farms who operate the world's largest vertical farm in Norfolk. They supply 6.5 tons of leafy salads, lettuce, leafy herbs, and other fresh produce to UK supermarkets every single day. Tristan, can you describe Fisher Farms to us? And what is vertical farming? Fisher Farms is a business which I set up in 2017, and it's a vertical farming business. And vertical farming is essentially hydroponics farming, which a lot of people will be familiar with if they buy bell peppers and cucumbers and strawberries and things like that. Most of those are currently grown in a hydroponics format. So you'll have a water with a nutrient mix going through it. And then that will have some kind of soil substitute. And then the seeds will be grown into that. And you'll grow a tomato plant or a strawberry plant or whatever it might be. And that technology has been around for decades and it's it's very, very popular. The difference between hydroponics and vertical farming is that instead of growing hydroponics in a greenhouse using natural sunlight, you're growing produce in a series of racks or shelves. And underneath each shelf is a series of LED lights, which mimics natural sunlight. And as a result of that, you can grow food very, very densely in a hydroponic system, but in a vertical format. And to sort of give you an idea what I mean by dense, our Farm 2 building, which is uh, near Norwich in England, produces in a four-acre building the equivalent of about a thousand acres worth of traditional British farmland. So it's very, very efficient in terms of use of space. What type of produce are you growing? At the moment, we are growing what I call short leafy green things. And we refer to that as our phase one crops. But Fisher Farms were set up Hmm. in order to actually grow rice and wheat and peas and soy. And so that's the end goal of what Fisher Farms wants to do. We call those phase three crops. So we go basically from phase one crops to phase two crops, which are what we refer to as fruiters. Um, So those are things like strawberries and blueberries and raspberries, and although technically not a fruit, uh, mushrooms, and then all the way down to phase three crops, which are the rice, wheat, soy, and peas. And the reason why we're doing that is because what Fisher Farms is trying to do is figure out how to feed the world without trashing the planet. And so there are significant issues that we are currently facing and even greater issues issues that we're going to be facing in the future regarding food security and food supply as the world's population continues to grow and the world's middle class population continues to grow. And in the meantime, water is declining, good quality soil is declining. And so having those problems, the sort of increase in demand and decrease in supply is a real problem. And then climate change, you know, there's a lot of evidence that is happening now and a lot of evidence to suggest that it's going to get worse over time, just makes that supply and demand imbalance worse. And as a result of that, growing things in controlled environment, vertical farms is really, really important because if it's very, very hot outside or it's flooding outside or it's terrible weather outside, you can still grow food inside a vertical farm in a secure way with significantly less environmental impacts than you would have out of conventional farming. Now, for those who haven't heard of hydroponics or vertical farming, I'm sure they're thinking this must use a lot of power. Can you tell us a little bit more about that? 
So it does use a lot of power, a lot of energy. If we look at farm one, for example, we are connected to a large solar farm. And so all of our daytime electricity comes from that solar farm. Then during the nighttime, we are drawing power from the grid. Farm two, we will be doing the same thing. We'll be connecting to a large solar farm as well once that solar farm is built. The solar farm that powers the vertical farm, you have this renewable energy, but what happens to all the excess energy that you generate? So most of the excess energy that we generate from the solar farm will go onto the grid itself. And so typically during the summer months, we will have a significant amount of excess energy, which we will spill onto the grid. But during the winter months, we will absorb nearly all of the solar energy that is generated by the solar panels, not just in the solar farm itself, but also on the roof of our building. And, uh, and I'm assuming you were closely with National Grid to feedback this clean energy from the sun. National Grid is an essential part of the UK's electrical system. And so typically what will happen is that we will put power into the local designated network operators system. And then that will then be fed from then onto the National Grid itself and will then go to the nearest demand center somewhere else in the area or further afield around the country. So yeah, so the National Grid is very, very important for us. And having access to National Grid is, is important for all of the sites that we are selecting for future future of vertical farms. And so we've currently got two vertical farms operating, one near Litchfield, which is just north of Birmingham, and another one which is near Norwich, which is just east of Cambridge. And we'll be adding more vertical farms to our location in, in Norwich. But we're also looking at other parts of the country as well to expand our vertical farm network. So would you like to see low-cost renewable energy and electricity? Absolutely. And this is something which is happening. And you can already see really strong evidence of how wind and solar energy is becoming an increasingly important part of the grid. And solar panels and solar electricity continues to get cheaper. Every year, wind energy is getting cheaper as well. And so I think that we're going to see increasing amounts of electricity production generation being done by wind and solar energy. And that's not just good from an environmental perspective, but is also really important from a cost perspective because solar and wind is cheaper than other forms of electricity. That's good news. I'm happy to hear that. Does this clean energy and generation help safeguard our food supply? If it's done in vertical farms, I think the answer to that is yes. And one of the things which, you know, when we look for sites okay. for developing new vertical farms, we're always looking for places where we can have access to wind energy or access to solar energy in addition to being connected to the grid. It's a really, really important component of how we drive down costs because we start off our phase one crops and then the phase two crops and then phase three crops. But those are all predicated on having access to lower cost electricity over time. So at the moment, we can grow our phase one crops, our short leafy green things, our herbs and salads at a price point which is competitive with field grown crops. But we can't do that for our phase two, and we can't do that for phase three, even though we know we can grow them today. We just can't do that at a price point which is competitive. But as electricity prices drop, dominated by increasing amounts of renewable energy coming onto the grid and through private wire systems, we can get down from our phase one to the phase two and to phase three crops, which are the really important crops in terms of human calorie intake. And so, so 52% of human calories come from wheat and come from rice. You know, those are really important crops for us to be growing in vertical farm structures. 
the small leafy greens you mentioned. Are we able to buy these salads right now at, at a supermarket or is it directly directly to Fisher Farms? Fisher Farms Farm 2 is currently commissioning. So we've been actually growing our first crops out of Farm 2 and we expect to see those on the market in the next couple of months. So in a couple of months time, you should be able to go to the supermarkets and buy Fisher Farms. They're generally not gonna be in the Fisher Farms labeling. They're gonna be part of generally supermarket own labels. And that's something which is very, very excited. And we've been working very hard towards over a year and a half now, which is the time it's taking to build Farm 2. Exciting. The question I have, and this is coming from me as a, as a chef, you have vertical farming, there's hydroponics, then you have the traditional method of farming. And our soil is in decline, like you mentioned earlier. And that soil, we need healthy soil for healthy plants and vegetables and the food that we consume. Um, now, when it's being grown in a vertical farm in the hydroponics, are we getting the same type of nutrients from soil and from the sun um, that you would get from, let's say, from your vertical farm or from your hydroponics? That's a great question. The answer is better. And the reason why is that the vertical farms provide the plants absolutely everything that they want. The way to think of it is that a seed has gone to sort of seed heaven when they get planted in a vertical farm. You know, they have exactly the right amount of light that they want, the right amount of humidity, <laughs> the right perfect amount of nutrient mix, the perfect amount of water. And they get that perfect environment 365 days a year, 24 hours a day. Whereas in the field, you get huge variations in terms of what's going on with the weather. You know, you can have dry periods, you can have wet periods, you can have sunny periods, you can have cloudy periods, you can have patches of soil which have a lot of nutrients in it, patches of soil which don't have enough nutrients in it. So it's very, very variable. Whereas vertical farming can produce excellent quality products all the time. And we've had chefs, we've had you know, big buyers for uh, restaurant chains who've come to Farm One and have tasted our product. And they're telling us, wow, this product tastes amazing. So it's really, really high quality. And it's really simple why it's high quality. It's just that we give the plants a fantastic environment all the time. And you can't do that in the soil. And so you know, vertical farming crops are not just environmentally better it does an environmental footprint that they have compared to conventional soil grown crops but they also taste better and they taste better consistently compared to field grown crops tristan thank you so much for joining us on the podcast i'm excited to try your salad very very soon tristan fisher is the chairman of fisher farms thank you We know that building the infrastructure to provide more renewable energy is essential to be able to reach net zero global emissions. But how will renewables and the infrastructure that comes with it bring benefits to our communities? National Grid Renewables is repowering America by reigniting local economies and reinvesting in a sustainable, clean energy future. It develops, owns, and operates competitive, high-performance renewable energy projects across the U.S to maximize value for their customers and community members. To find out more, I'm talking to Betsy Engelking, Vice President of Policy and Return to Office Strategy at National Grid Renewables. Thank you for joining us. I wanna jump straight in. I would love to know more about the projects you're working on and share more with us. Sure, well, we develop utility scale solar and wind projects 
and we have a number of them under construction right now. We have a Wild Springs solar project under construction in South Dakota, and we have our Yellowbud project, which is about to be ready to be opened in Ohio, as well as we're constructing a solar and storage project in Texas called Copperhead. How does this all work and how does this actually create a better future for us? And what are some positives from all these projects? Aside from the clean energy that we are producing and selling into the market or to our customers, we also bring huge benefits to the economies of the small communities that we typically serve in. Renewable energy tends to be agricultural related. It's in a community that has many farms, small towns, and we help them in a number of ways. First of all, we bring in large amounts of construction labor and they use the community's hotels and restaurants and shop in their stores and increase the income in the community that way. Wonderful. Can you tell me about the projects that build solar and wind power on community farms? We build in agricultural communities. We see ourselves as a life partner in these communities. and. Mm. As a result, we are contributing to the community not only through tax payments that we make, which actually keeps the property taxes lower in some of those rural counties and provides them with money to invest in their schools. We improve roads when we go in in order to carry all of the heavy equipment that we use to build wind and solar. And so that we leave them with better roads. And one of the special features of National Grid Renewables is that we also leave a lasting charitable contribution in the community. We set up a community fund that is paid into the community every year for 20 years, which is about the life of a contract or a project. And that is administered by a locally elected board that takes in ideas from the community on what they might want to do with those funds and uses them to make improvements in the community. Our formula is about $200 per megawatt built. So if we have a 200 megawatt project, then that's $40,000 a year for the next 20 years that small communities can use to invest to make their life better. How wonderful. Could you tell us a little bit more about Noble Solar and Storage Project and how they all work? Our Noble Solar and Storage Project is a very large project just outside of Dallas, Texas. It's the first project that we've built that has included storage. And one of the important things about storage is that it allows us to address the realities of solar, which is the sun isn't always shining. When the sun is shining and the energy is not needed on the grid, we can put it into the storage. And that allows us to cover outages at the project. So the energy is continuous. We know that The sun doesn't shine all the time, and it allows us to, what we call firm the power, make it to be more continuous and more dispatchable for the grid. I think you mentioned this earlier about the infrastructure and all the projects you're building, but what other infrastructures are you building to help benefit communities? We upgrade lines in the community areas, which allows them to have more reliable power. Mm. Every time we build a project, we build a substation and we build transmission lines that will help us connect to the bigger grid. And the other thing that actually benefits the communities is having power close to their source of load. The project that we are building in South Dakota right now, Wild Springs, 
The Rural Electric Co-op is very excited about it because it puts a generation source in their community that they can rely on if there is outages because they are end of the line in terms of their electric generation. And having some power in the community helps increase the stability of the grid and the reliability of the power that they give to their customers. Earlier on, you mentioned Yellowbud. I'd love to know how you're involved with Yellowbud Community Fund and what they do. The Yellowbud Community Fund is working on setting up its board of directors, and that is always people in the community, usually a couple of landowners from our project, sometimes somebody who runs, say, the local bank, sometimes some of the county commissioners or township personnel, and they put together a board, and all we do is put the money in the fund, and then they start taking ideas of what that money might be spent for. And one of the things that we hear frequently is that $40,000 is a lot of money for a small community. I actually think yellow, but it's $56,000 that they'll get every year. And it can be used to build ball fields. It can be used to buy equipment for the volunteer firefighter departments. It can be donated to local 4-H and other concerns. It could be used for education. We have a project in Illinois, Prairie Wolf, that the money is being donated directly to the schools to provide programs and classes that they couldn't do otherwise. All very fascinating projects and ways National Grid are getting involved, and I just wanted to say thank you. Thanks for taking the time to chat with us, Betsy. Betsy is the Vice President of Policy and RTO Strategy at National Grid Renewables. Thank you so much for joining our podcast and being part of the clean energy revolution. And thanks to all my guests for showing us just some of the benefits renewable energy infrastructure is bringing to our environment and our communities. If you'd like to find out more about how clean and green energy is part of your own world right now, you can follow National Grid on social media or visit nationalgrid.com. Next time on the Clean Energy Revolution podcast, we'll find out how the transition to clean energy is bringing all kinds of new and interesting job opportunities to the employment market. Make sure you follow and subscribe to this podcast and don't miss it. And if you enjoyed this podcast, please remember to rate and review. Take care.